Please open your Bibles, if you haven't, to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, We're going to be covering the last section in this chapter. And the title of my message this morning is Order Over Chaos. Order Over Chaos. And here is the main point of this passage for us. The church is edified through spirit-empowered order. The church is edified through spirit-empowered order. Now, have you ever wondered what would happen if gravity ceased to exist? Am I the only one who's ever sat at night and pondered that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, in, in my mind, as I imagined it, is if, if gravity ceased to exist on the earth, that we would, everything would just kind of start to float upward slowly until we either burned up in the atmosphere or were dragged out into space and died. It's kind of a morbid uh, daydream for me. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but what I found out when I researched is I don't know much about physics because it's far worse. It's actually worse. If there were no gravity, things would get astronomically worse than us just floating up into space. Actually, what would happen is if, if gravity was just gone on Earth, then yes, we would begin to go up. But not just us. Everything else, including the atmosphere and all water, and eventually the earth itself would break apart and be scattered into space. So if there's no gravity on earth, everything just flies apart. Now, if there's no gravity in the universe, it's even worse, because essentially all matter would break down to its atoms. See, gravity is one of the forces in the universe that holds things together. Without gravity, there's no order. Without order... There's no structure. Without structure, there's no life. There's no growth. There's no flourishing. We must have order in order to flourish. Chaos is not a recipe for flourishing, but a recipe for disaster. And just as the force of gravity allows order and structure in our natural world, in order that there's life and flourishing, we must have order and structure in our lives and in the church in order to experience flourishing and growth in building up in Christ. That's Paul's point in these verses, that there's no order, then there's no flourishing, there's no building up in Christ. And to flip it around, in order to build each other up in Christ, there needs to be order. And so he presses on the Corinthians, yet again, this point, building each other up. And as we saw last week, his, his points and his application was, hey, you need to have intelligible speech. If you're going to speak in tongues, there needs to be an interpreter. Prophecy is better than speaking in tongues because it's intelligible. And so to build each other up, there needed to be intelligible speech. If I don't understand what you're saying, I can't be encouraged or edified or challenged by it. And then he's going to make another application here in this last section, 1 Corinthians 14, about order. There must be order in order to build each other up. Here's what he writes in verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. Corinthians, when you come together, I know y'all have a word to share. I know everyone's got a hymn they want to sing, a tongue they want to speak, a prophecy they want to give, an encouragement. I know you're just itching to use your gifts. But the overarching, the controlling theme, the controlling value above all of that desire is this. Everything must be done for building up. You submit 
that gift to something greater. And if that's going to happen, there has to be order. There has to be an order to how worship is done. There has to be an order to the community and the exercising of gifts. And then he's going to apply this in three ways. The first is in their exercising of tongues and interpretation. Here's what he writes in verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and to speak to himself and God. Those with the gift of tongues were not just to blurt out that tongue. They were not just to speak over one another in one language going over another over another. It wasn't a mad dash to see who could speak their tongue the fastest and the loudest. It wasn't a competition. There's nothing spiritual about a multitude of various voices talking over one another. Nothing spiritual about disorder and chaos. Rather, the gift of tongues, those with the gift of tongues are to take turns, wait for an interpretation. And if there's no interpretation, then that conversation is no longer public, but private between you and the Lord. Order demands, taking turns, waiting for an interpretation. And if there's not that, then you're to keep silent. The next way he applies this is to the use of prophecy in verses 29 through 33. He writes, two or three prophets should speak and the other should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are sub subject to the prophets since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Again, the principle is order and building up. One prophet is not to dominate the conversation. If another word has been given, then the first one is to be silent and let the other person speak. They are to take turns. And there's also to be a weighing, an evaluation, an assessment of what is being said. And there needs to be time given to weigh what each person has said. And you, if you have a word, you can't interrupt that process of weighing and evaluating. So order in the way that prophecy is exercised. And then finally, Paul applies the principle of order to a group of women who are becoming unruly. As he writes in verses 33 through 35, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, taken as a blanket, sort of naked statement without any context, this sounds very harsh and heavy-handed. In fact, some have used this passage to silence women in the church. Ripped out of its context, to be clear. Because here's the problem. If this is just a blanket statement, a categorical statement, if Paul is saying women should never speak in the church, then he's contradicting himself. Because earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verse 5, what does he talk about? The whole issue of head covering. Remember when we talked about that? What was going on? What was the instruction Paul gave to the women? Why was he concerned? Because they were praying or prophesying. They were speaking publicly without their head covered and all that that represented. So Paul was instructing them in verse 11 how they were to speak in public in the worship gathering. So either Paul forgot what he wrote or we need to 
understand the context of what these verses are saying. The context of these verses is not just blankets, women be quiet. The context, remember, is order, structure. So it's not speech in general, it's unruly speech that he is addressing here. The Greek word translated silent, it can mean refrain from talking, or it can mean refrain from talking in a particular way, depending on the context. And what is the context here? Unruly speech. So Paul is addressing a group of women who were speaking in an unruly manner. The way that they were proceeding in the service was creating disorder. Something else we need to clarify here. Paul's reference to the law. What is he referring to when he says the law? Because if you go through the law, the Mosaic law specifically, what you will find is no reference to women being silent. You'll also find no direct reference to the submission, so the lines that he says there. There's, there's no passage that is, he's pointing to. And if you go into your reference Bible, that sort of, hey, if a New Testament passage is quoting the Old Testament or referring to one, you won't find a connection. Why? Because he's not referring to a specific passage. He's referring to a principle. What is he pointing to? Well, he is more than likely pointing to Genesis 1 and 2. And Genesis 1 and 2 is part of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. And a shorthand of talking about those five books was often the law. And so what Paul is referring to in Genesis 1 and 2 is that there is a created order, as we see. God created and he set the world in order. Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2, is this beautiful picture of God speaking and, and he is creating, and the imagery there is, is he is taking chaos and he's creating order. And in that order, God creates man and woman. And in that creation, he is set in order in the relationship. He created man first, and man is to take on the responsibility of leadership in the home, in the family, and by extension, the church, the family of God. And so Paul is referring to a created order here that the women were violating in their unruly speech. How are they doing that? Well, we don't have specifics here, but here's likely what is happening. Again, drawing as much as we can from the context. That there was at some points in the whole prophesying and interpret or weighing and understanding, it was likely that there were a group of women who were interrupting that process. So a prophet would speak, and then the leaders of the church were called to sort of weigh that and evaluate that, and women were interrupting that, speaking out of turn, maybe asking questions, maybe in an unruly sort of, I want to grab control way, or maybe just sort of in ignorance and their curiosity got the best of them, and they couldn't keep their mouth closed. They were so excited. We don't know. But that process was being interrupted, and essentially what was happening is they were stepping over the bounds of leadership in the church, and it's possible they were even doing that to their husbands, and so what Paul was saying, saying, hey, rather than being unruly in that process, it's better for you. If you have questions, hey, ask your husband at home. If you are wondering things that it would be wrong for you to blurt out in the middle of a service, when you're home, ask those questions. That's an important context for you to do that. So he is speaking against an unruly interrupting of an orderly process in the church that apparently a group of women had been committing. Their curiosity, 
their questions, even their good desire to grow, did not take priority over the order that leads to building up in the church. And so, in the end, the end section here of chapter 14, as Paul has done over and over and over again, he's emphasizing the principle of using your spiritual gifts, the thing that controls that, that we submit our gifts to, is building up the church. And if you want to build up the church, there needs to be order. There needs to be structure. And we need to submit to that structure, submit ourselves to that structure. So that's Paul's point here in these verses. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. The application in some ways was unique to their situation. Our services don't look exactly like their services. However, however, we need to be honest. We need to be honest about how this affects us. Because look, is it not true? We can read a passage like this. We can see that Paul is calling us to order and structure, and those are good things. But is it not true that in each and every one of our hearts, there is this rebellion against structure, rebellion against order? Like, I don't want to be told what to do. You can't make me submit to your structure. I I can create my own structure for myself. That's fine. But don't ask me to submit to your structure. We We can, in fact, even find structure stifling. If I have to submit to structure, that means I have to submit my freedom and maybe even my identity and my self-expression to something else. And we don't like that. It's stifling. It keeps us from being ourselves. And here's what's scary. In the church, we can start to convince ourselves it keeps us from experiencing the Spirit. Like we can convince ourselves that what it means to be Spirit-filled is to have no structure. Like at some points, little, little, let's, let's talk a little church history here, American church history. At some points in the American evangelical church, we got it in our heads, at least a large group of us got it in our heads, that spirit-filled meant no structure. Like the spirit-filled churches, those are the ones that had no structure. Those stodgy, dead, legalistic ones, they're the ones with structure. Boy, you want to see the spirit move? Get all the structure out of the way. Let's just show up, let the Spirit lead, and wherever he goes, he's going to go. And it seemed like the more the Spirit moved, the more chaotic it became. Like where we inverted this, where it became chaos was a sign of being Spirit-filled. Where Paul says, no, that's actually not the sign of being (laughs) Spirit-filled. Following order and structure is a sign of being Spirit-filled. Why? Because it shows submission. And if you remember all the way back in chapter 12, what is the sign of true spirituality? Jesus is Lord. Submission. (laughs) In church, it is scary. It is scary when we baptize our selfishness and our rebellion with spiritually sound, spiritual language, language that sounds spiritual, when we use the Holy Spirit to hide behind our desire to not want to submit, that our desire to be selfish, our desire to express ourselves however we want to chase after every spiritual, emo, spiritual and emotional high, and no one can tell us otherwise. No one can tell us to submit. No one can tell us that, hey, maybe that's a selfish use of the gift. Maybe that's stepping outside the bounds and order of structure that God has called us to. We need to be honest about how this rebellion lives in our hearts, And we need to be honest about the ways that we've allowed culture to influence how we exercise our spirituality. I mean, let's just just step away from the issue of worship here for a second. 
Like our culture has like thrown gasoline on the fire by telling you that you should just chase after unhindered freedom and identity and self-expression however you see those things. Like our culture has said, you can define yourself, you can be whoever you want. No structure, no hindrance, no God, no morality, no institution can tell you otherwise. And here's how bad it's become. We have detached from the very structure of our bodies. Like we have convinced ourselves that our biology doesn't matter. I can be whoever I want to be. That's how far we have removed ourselves from structure in order. Things have gotten dark, church. And sadly, sadly, we've allowed that mindset to affect how we exercise our spirituality. We become selfish. We become self-focused. What matters is my own experience, my own self-expression. God just wants me to be happy, and so I'm going to chase after everything that makes me happy. No talk of submission. No talk of being under something bigger and greater than ourselves. No. We've allowed the culture to define our spirituality, and it can affect the way that we worship Jesus. And so we need to be honest about the ways that we have perhaps used the Holy Spirit to justify selfishness, used our pursuit of gifts to justify selfishness. Because as God's word tells us this morning, such selfishness, such selfish use of gifts, such pursuit of experiences, such throwing things out of order and rejecting order and rejecting structure are not spiritual maturity. They're not of the Holy Spirit. The church is edified by spirit-empowered order, as the Apostle Paul reminds us. And so, for those of us that are prone to this, for those of us that chaos rules our hearts and we're tempted by the darkness, we're tempted by the chaos, like we buck against order, we buck against structure. And there's a whole plethora of reasons why that might be. Some of that is our sin, some of that is our story, but there's a reality that some of us are just drawn to that. We're tempted by that. Man, chaos rules our hearts, chaos rules our lives, and then chaos rules the way we worship God. And so any asking to submit to structure feels very restrictive and feels like, oh wow, this can't be of the Holy Spirit because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Friends, just as you cannot exist without the order-creating power of gravity, you cannot flourish and exist spiritually without order. Chaos in your soul is not of the Holy Spirit. Chaos in your soul is a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. And our pride and our selfishness feeds that black hole of chaos. Friends, do you know Jesus set you free? He died to set you free from the chaos in your soul. Like that disorder that sin creates, that destruction and that wreckage that is ruining your life, wrecking your spirituality, wrecking your maturity, hollowing out your soul. Like Jesus died to set you free from that, not feed it. Jesus offers you the freedom from the chaos in your soul, the freedom from the chaos in your life. Friends, he's come to undo chaos. He's a God of order. That's a good thing. He's not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. Do you want peace in your soul? I wonder, if you experience chaos in your soul, 
Would you like peace? Would you like the Spirit to come and bring peace and calm and structure? I think we know this. I think we know this. I mean, let's just use an example from from parenting, because most of you in the room, or a lot of you in the room, are parents. What, What sociology will tell you, what common grace wisdom will tell you, like kids rebel against order, don't they? But why do they do that? Because they're trying to find where the order exists. Yeah, they're sinful, but they're also looking for where the structure is because structure offers safety and they want that. It's <laughs> we want structure because we intuitively know it is good for us. And so when sin and chaos overwhelms us and we think that's the best way forward, Jesus steps in, the Spirit steps in and says, let me offer you freedom freedom from that chaos. And you know what? When we come into worship and there is a structure where we submit ourselves, we can bring the chaos that we've experienced in our souls all week, the battle, the war, the struggle. But if we enter into worship and there is a structure that we can land in that catches us and holds us, boy, that is life-giving. That's good news. That is God's gift to you. That is God's grace to you to bring peace in the midst of your chaos. And so if you struggle with disorder, if you struggle with chaos in your heart, know that God has something better for you. Conversely, all you control freaks, (laughs) all you that go, I love order. Man, give me more order. Give me more structure. I feel really confident in order and structure. Well, hey, here's what happens there. Your hope becomes structure. Your hope becomes order. And what does Paul say in verse 39? He actually points to this truth. Hey, don't forbid speaking in tongues and you should be eager to prophesy. What is he saying? Hey, you should desire to use the spiritual gifts. You should desire that the spirit is present and active in your order because the order isn't your hope. Order isn't our hope. God is our hope. Order isn't our power. The spirit is our power. Yes, the Spirit works through order. He works through structure. But without the Spirit, that order and structure are dead. All we're left with is our discipline. All we're left with is our own control. And some of you, you love order because you love control. You feel in control. You feel like if I can order and if I can control my life, in other words, if I can perform well, then I'll be okay. And here's what happens then, is you actually begin to use order and structure to hide from God. Like, you can show up on a Sunday and there can be an ordered worship service and you can feel good about that order and the whole time you're not communing with God. Like the whole time it is just maybe academic exercise or you're completely detached, your heart's detached. But boy, there's order and there's structure and you can feel good about that there's no communing with God. There's no depending on the Spirit. There's no being in tune with what the Spirit is doing in you and through you and what he's doing in the people on a gather, in a gathered worship service. And so what ends up happening, church? Order becomes our thing rather than depending upon the Spirit. And so if you love order, if you think order is your hope, if that's all that you want, well, then you've missed, also missed Paul's points, that there is a Spirit who is alive and active in the church, equipping and empowering people. 
that there is life here. This isn't intellectual academic exercise. We're not sitting back passive and watching people perform. No, we're communing with the living God and communing with one another. The spirit is at work in all of our hearts. He's using us to edify and build each other up. There's life here, church. There's not just order. Like, look, what would happen? So gravity, we recognize gravity is a good thing and we recognize it's a real thing. What would happen if we just sort of said, okay, gravity is this thing. Let's just submit to that order. And all we ever could ever do in our life is just walk. Like no climbing, no trying to fly. Like what if we just had this dead sense of order? Well, look at all of the things that we would have been capable of experiencing and doing that we never would have done. Like, just because there's gravity doesn't mean that we can't jump and run and climb things. Doesn't mean that we didn't learn how to fly in planes. Like, there's a wonderful beauty and power. There's this incredible playground, as it were, within the structure of gravity that God has given us. God is rich and abundant. And it's the same thing. Order and structure aren't meant to box us in, but to give us freedom. And there's a wonderful freedom when we depend on the spirit and the power in that order. That's what we want. So we're not after rigid, dead structure. Our hope isn't because we have a liturgy. No, we want to experience the life of the spirit, the power of Christ and the gospel. That's why our structure exists. It's a gift to us so that we can experience the fullness of life. And so if you are beholden to structure, beholden to control, the Spirit offers you something better. Living, breathing relationship. Communing with the living God. The Spirit active and alive in you, filling you with joy and hope and peace, equipping you, giving you gifts so you can go and build up and edify the church for the glory of God. Like you can commune with God here. Like actually experience God. Do you believe that? Like transforming power that comes through incredible joy and incredible tears. Comfort, hope, honesty, confession, repentance, forgiveness, transformation, all of that here, all of that life. That's what we want to experience, church. And so look, why are we liturgical? Let me, let me just speak into this for just briefly. Why are we liturgical? Like we've talked about this before on Sundays, I shared a little bit about this at the, our most recent foundations class, but look, we're liturgical not because we think it's cool and hip, not because it's this new trendy thing to do, hey, go be liturgical like they did back in the day because that's a cool thing to do in church now. Well, we're not doing it because we believe we have to be slave to a structure. No, no, here's why. Because we are engaging the structure that God has promised to use. Here's what I mean. And I've used this analogy before, so some of you, this is going to sound familiar. Like, let's say Mindy and I are going to meet for lunch. And she says, Chris, I am going to be at Raising Cane's because I want Raising Cane's for lunch today. Raising Cane's is great. But I decided, you know what? Okay, she says, I'm going to be at Raising Cane's at noon on Monday. That's where I promise I'm going to be. But I'm, I'm thinking, okay, noon on Monday comes, and I'm like, you know what? Actually, you know, there's Jesus chicken over at Chick-fil-A, and so I should go over and get the Jesus chicken. My wife's a really spiritual person. And so I show up to Chick-fil-A at noon, and she's not there. And I'm like, what's going on? Why is she not here? Well, where did she promise she was going to be? 
Raising Cain's, she promised. So if I wanted to experience her presence and all the joy that is in her presence and hanging out and having lunch with her, I would go to where she promised she was going to be. Is it possible she got the same inclination for Jesus' chicken that I did and showed up to Chick-fil-A without telling me? Possibly, maybe, but where did she promise? Raising Cain's. So why would I not go where she has promised to meet me? It's the same thing. Why are we liturgical? Because in the liturgical elements, God has promised to meet us. Like, why do we do a call to worship every Sunday? Because we are reminded that this isn't about us. We're not here because Pastor Paul and myself said, hey, let's get people together on a Sunday morning. No, we're here because God has called us to worship. He invites us. Have you ever gotten an invitation to like a wedding or a celebration from somebody that you really thought was important? You're like, this is amazing. I got invited. That happens every Sunday. We're invited every single Sunday to come and worship God. That's why we do a call to worship, to be reminded of that truth. Why do we sing each and every Sunday? Because in singing, we're formed and we're transformed. Why do we pray? Because we get to commune with our God. Why do we profess our faith? Because as 1 John tells us, in professing our faith, we're strengthened in our faith. And when we profess together, we're strengthened and unified together. Why do we hear God's word each and every Sunday? Because God's word is our life. This is the word that transforms our heart. This is Christ held out to us through the preaching and through his word. And so we preach his word every single week. Why do we confess sin? Because when we confess sin, as God's word tells us, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why would we not? Why do we take the Lord's Supper each and every Sunday? Why should you sit down with your family each and every day? Because when you do that over and over and over again, relationship is built. It's not empty, dead ritual. It's never empty, dead ritual. We're communing with Christ, the presence of Christ in the bread and in the wine. We get to experience it each and every week. Why do we do each of these things? Because God has promised his spirit will meet us and transform us. We do these things in hope. We do these things because of promise. That's why we gather. That's why we do what we do on Sundays. The same thing could be said about gospel community. Why do we do what we do on gospel community? There's no, you have to do this this way in the Bible. There's no, thou shalt do small groups this way. But what do we see in scripture? We see that the power of gathering with God's people, showing hospitality, sitting down and eating a meal together, opening the word, being honest with one another, applying truth to one another, speaking encouragement and challenge to one another, all those things are a good structure. God works through them. God strengthens us in them. And also, here's what happens. We have to submit our lives to something bigger than ourselves. Like, I'm sure every single week, GC night rolls around, you're like, yes, GC night. I love that we have to go home, make a meal, go to GC. I'm sure it's never an interruption on your, on your week, in your calendar, never. It's always just perfectly timed. But what happens Each and every week you make a decision. Am I going to submit my schedule to something bigger than myself? Am I going to set aside my wants, my desires, and be willing to serve and be part of something bigger than myself? I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to lay down my comforts. And I'm going to go and be part of a group of people that are trying to grow together to follow Jesus more faithfully. And so, yeah, sometimes that means it's a pain to have to make a dish and bring it. But you know, that act is so faith-building. And just gathering together week after week, eating together, 
Man, some of the best conversation in GC happens over meal, not in the circle. Like what is being built there is so much bigger. And I know we don't always see that. I know we don't always see that. But I tell you, week after week, month after month, year after year, it's amazing what happens when we submit ourselves to a structure bigger than ourselves. The growth we experience, the joy we experience, the way that we are knit together as a body, all of that is beautiful. All of that matters. All that happens when we say our lives, our use of our gifts, our experience of Christ, our, our life as disciples is bigger than just us, bigger than just my schedule, bigger than just my experience, bigger than just me having an outlet to exercise my spiritual gifts. Rather, I'm about edifying the entire body. Church, structure is good. The church is edified by spirit-empowered structure. And so, here's what this means for us. It means that rather than bucking against structure as our culture is going to tell us, rather than bucking against order and limitations, we're going to see the good of those things and we're going to submit our lives to them. But we're going to do so knowing that we need the Spirit. And so we're going to ask Spirit, empower this service, empower our liturgy, empower the preaching, empower the singing, empower our prayers. Meet us where we are on Sundays. Meet us in gospel community as we are eating together, as we are communing with one another and speaking to one another and challenging one another. And all the structures that we have and that we do, we want the Spirit to move. Spirit, empower me and my gifts to serve and build up the church. Are we crying out for the power of the Spirit? Are we depending on the power of the Spirit? We want to do that. We want the structures to be Spirit-empowered. And that happens as we are prayerful, and purposeful in how we engage them. And so church, I am grateful. I am so grateful that this is a church that gets order. I mean, we, we haven't had an unruly service in six years, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> and that's a good thing. But here's the other thing. Are we coming each and every Sunday to this order, to this structure, and all the good that it has for us, and all the promises God has made to us with great expectation that he's going to meet us? Do you come each and every Sunday believing God has said he's going to meet me in the call to worship? He's going to meet me in the worship as I sing. He's going to meet me in the profession. He's going to meet me as his word is preached. He's going to meet me as I confess sin and hear the gospel. He's going to meet me as I come to the Lord's table. Do you believe that he's going to each and every week do you come with expectation? Do you come with belief? Do you come with a sense of dependence? Spirit, move. I want you to move on me. That I think we need to grow in. That I think we can grow in. That I want us to lean into. I want us to lean into being in tune with what the Spirit is doing each and every Sunday, what he's doing in us and through us and among us. Are we in tune? Are we communing? Are we living Spirit-empowered in this structure. Oh, church, if that's our hearts, not only on Sundays, not only in gospel communities, but in our families, in our interactions with one another, parents with your kids, in all the structures that we live in because we recognize structure is good, if we are seeking the Spirit and the Spirit's power, submitting to the power of the Spirit, believing the Spirit is gonna meet us, that's gonna transform us. That's going to transform things. That's going to change things. And so let's be that church. Let's be encouraged in our good order, 
but let's seek the Spirit and depend on the Spirit in all things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.